Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there, welcome. Welcome to the show. Uh, let's get a date in here just for posterity's purposes. Are my peas popping? Uh, August 25th. Good God. Uh, oh, dear, guys. Always have the same problem where the hell to start. I hate to start with the dead, but frankly, I think a lot of people were stunned to learn that Charlie Watson died. I mean, I, it's funny. I was out, uh, after the show yesterday, I happened to go out, run an errand. I was in a shop and the phone rang in the shop, not my phone. And the owner grabbed the phone and there was a second of silence. And then she said, yeah, I know. I know. Isn't it just, it's just so awful. You just didn't, I can't believe it either. I know. You knew the people immediately were turning to other people to say, Charlie, what? Um, there is I am a die hard Rolling Stones fan they are my favorite favorite band I never went to concerts uh, much not because I didn't want to hear the music but because I could never stand the crowds and then later on I don't know exactly when it happened when the crowds I couldn't stand when they were actually sitting began to stand through the whole concert, I uh, really stopped going. I thought, what is the point of me buying a seat if nobody uses them? So anyway, I've always been grumpy by nature and somewhat solitary, so that's why I... But uh, I've seen the Stones... I think twice here, I had thought about going to their next concert here and thought, no, I had already decided now without Charlie Watts, forget about it. Anyway, um, reading about him uh, in the obituaries, uh, not surprisingly exactly what you would have expected. He was as he appeared. quiet, debonair, serious, and uh, not your typical rock star. He wanted to be a jazz drummer. And I I feel one of the quotes, and he was, I mean, he got little jazz groups together. In fact, Charlie Watts played Pittsburgh, I think, in the late 80s, right, with uh, um, one of his jazz uh, bands. Um, but he said that during all those shows that I saw him at, because I saw him before I'm, I was here in Pittsburgh as well, but at all of those big, you know, stadium venues that I saw him at, he, he said he would always just sort of pretend that he was in the Blue Note or Birdland with Charlie Parker in front of him and not Mick Jagger's, you know, little ass, which he also commented on is all he ever saw for 40 years. Um, he said it was an illusion that he, he conjured to make it more bearable because he found all the hoo-ha about being a rock star to be, well, he said it. I think it's silly. <laughs> it's not what I want it to be. And so he's, I tried to do the math in my head. I think I did it right. He was married to the same woman for 57 years. 
uh, just sort of a solid human. I am, um, and one of the cutest things, he really was extremely talented uh, as a graphic artist. And um, he said when they would be on tour, after a show, he would just go back to whatever hotel room he was given. While sometimes the others would go out and party. And he took to sketching whatever bed he was sleeping on. And it became something he did. He said, I have drawn every bed I've slept in on tour since 1967. Well, I, I wish somebody would compile that and, and, uh, and put it out there for, for all of us. Because he even said it's a fantastic non-book. Well, somebody make it into a book. Oh, God. <laughs> it's only rock and roll. Okay. I, I mean, I'm sure if you're, if you're Stones fans, you're, you're gobbling up all the information you can so I'll I'll cease and desist. And before I get into um heavier stuff, if you'll allow me, I want to talk about somebody else who's new, who's no longer here. And this is a result of me trying to organize all this stuff that's still my table. The clippings, the articles, the, the pictures, the letters, it, it's amazing. But I came upon this wonderful piece uh, written by a former uh, reporter for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette long ago, Dennis Roddy, who was one of my favorites because he was such a damn fine writer. I'm just still is a damn fine writer, I'm sure. I follow him on Twitter now. But Dennis Roddy, um, later, he left the Post-Gazette and became, and I hope I get this right, the PR guy, the PR slack for governor. What governor was that? Please tell me it wasn't Corbett. Please. It might have been, um, although it might have been, but some a Republican governor. I'm afraid it was Corbett. Um, but he wrote a piece that brought me back to uh, memories of one of the sort of, you know, how some people just take over a room they are by nature larger in their presence. I'm not talking actually larger. They just, by their exuberance, by their personality, their charisma. And Dennis Roddy wrote a piece about one such man after his death. And it's a death that I well remember because he was a friend of mine and as I was going through all this stuff I not only found this wondrous piece by Dennis Roddy but I found the eulogy that I delivered at the funeral so you're wondering who the heck is he talking about if you've been in Pittsburgh for some time and if you're a, if you were a political junkie, um, you'll you will know the name. If not, you will not. In all likelihood, because he died in 1997 at the age of 61, which was just so. It was one of those deaths that just startled. Dropped dead doing what he did love to do, playing golf with a bunch of politicos. Mossy Murphy. 
I guess if you said, what did Mossy Murphy do? Well, I think he was a political operative or political figure. He was always in the middle and midst of politics. Um, and he became a political analyst uh, for the TV station that I worked for, WTAE, which is how I was able to meet him. But what a wondrous character. And if I may, for those of you who do remember, because this is one of those characters you don't want to ever forget. This is a life-limbed, large I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'm just going to read. There's one line that just made me howl out loud. It is so right on the money. But let me uh, let me share this with you. This is Dennis Roddy about Mossy Murphy, a man whose politics he did not share. Mossy was a real liberal Democrat. Dennis Roddy says this, he was volatile, opinionated, troublesome, and ultimately captivating. We will miss him, not in spite of his faults, but because of them. They made him interesting in the way a man ought to be interesting, if only to counterbalance a time in which observers of politics strive tiresomely to seem neutral. Well, see, that's not true anymore. He wrote this in 1997 <laughs> and ends up as tasty as the intellect as to the intellect as boiled kidneys. Here's where he describes him that is just spot on brilliant. Mossy. His name was Maurice. Mossy was different. He had a loud mouth and loud ways, wore his political bias on the outside. The very set of his jaw suggested an imminent fistfight. His hair, this is a line I love, his hair looked as if it had been tossed, tossed to him from across the room and was being worn the way it landed. He ran up an impressive list of bad debts while on the other side, slipping cash to families behind on their mortgages or making up the balance of a young man's tuition money. And then Roddy goes on to bemoan the loss of characters. I know I used to do that with regularity too. We used to have so many wondrous characters um, in politics. And then we became just like everybody else. It's like the homogenization of uh, the American countryside, how the outskirts of every town look like every other town. And now politicians are blow dried, except for Fetterman. Fetterman is one now that is not. But, you know, they all look a certain way. And so the characters are gone. And I just want to talk about this example when he says that Mossy was piling up bad debts, even while slipping people he really didn't even know money. And in my eulogy, I alluded to that because this was something I learned during my friendship with him. And I learned it late because Mossy lived so large that, well, I assumed that he was rich as hell. And in the eulogy, I said, he was a huge Duquesne basketball fan. I mean, apparently on the, um, when a game was held, I mean, he was on the floor leading cheers half the time. Um, I believe when he died, the seat he always sometimes sat in uh, 
was said to, you know, no one was ever going to sit in that seat. The president of Duquesne at the time said it will be Mossy's seat forever. But in my eulogy, I said, you know, one of one of the Dukes, the Duquesne Dukes basketball players is quoted in today's newspaper saying he thought Mossy was a billionaire. And I said, you know, I only thought he was a multimillionaire. And we were both <laughs> wrong. Although our mistaken impressions are understandable. His generosity was, well, I said it's like a, a Santa Claus on amphetamines. Uh, and he didn't care if you'd been naughty. Or nice. He'd probably like you better if you'd been naughty. And I think his gener I think I think his generosity was most evidenced by his own home. Because when you went to Mossy's house, it was always full. I mean full. It was a big house and it was full. He had about a hundred and twenty children that I could tell. I couldn't I could never quite figure out. There were so many people there. And I, I mentioned that in my eulogy. Pity the poor census taker who shows up at 2771 Beechwood and asks, how many people live in this house? Because at any given time, no one could give you a straight answer, including uh, Mossy's wonderful wife, Carol. Because he was forever bringing people home not just for dinner, not just for a few days, although he would often tell Carol, we just, he's going to stay here for a few days, okay? But for years. <laughs> In some cases, for a lifetime. When a neighboring family uh, suffered a horrible loss where both parents died, leaving, and I'm going to get these numbers wrong, well, wrong. I think leaving five or six children orphaned. Mossy took them in. And they were young. Those were young kids. So there were those children who were every bit as much his children you would never know than his own children. I, how many people do stuff like that? And he wasn't rich. Oh, well, I want to thank Dennis Roddy for helping me remember and um, this man that should not be forgotten. I think um, he was on my radio show all the time. And I, I think it was after his appearance on one of my WTAE radio shows that I don't know if it was then, but he, it was the beginning of the end for him as a political analyst uh, here because he, he ended up in a fight um, in the parking lot with, I think with the Republican, I don't know if he was the commissioner then, the uh, Republican commissioners, Larry Dunn and, and Cranmer. I, I'm sorry, my memory is so bad, but it, it, the pugnacity of Mossy uh, was legendary. Anyway, just wanted those of you who remember him to remember him, because he is missed. All right. Enough of the dead. I guess we got to head back into the land of the living. Um, God. You see how much I don't want to. You didn't happen to see something that happened, I think it was yesterday. No, I missed it too. It's It's so... 
it's so ironic and so sort of metaphoric and uh, perfect. A horse-drawn carriage carrying a coffin passed through the uh, gates of Arlington National Cemetery yesterday, I think, or Monday, maybe. And at the gravesite were all, it was like a reunion, were all of the people who brought us in to Afghanistan and then to Iraq. It was really, it was like this big reunion. They were burying Don Rumsfeld. So Dick Cheney was there. And you remember, what was his name? Wolfowitz. Oh, God. All the guys responsible for the 20 years of unwinnable war. And to read about the this event at Arlington, man, they were having a hell of a time. They were laughing and laughing. Of course, they were remembering their buddy and having a lot of fun. Remember when Don Rummy did this? Remember when Cheney was the lead mourner. So how, you know, how perfect is that? That as people are scrambling for their lives to get out of that hellhole that these guys got us into, They traded war stories and laughed. Good time. The reporting on this say that the words Afghanistan or Iraq were rarely mentioned uh, during the course of this. Here's something that was mentioned. The Secretary of Defense was there, but because... I guess you had to be, I guess. I guess when a Secretary of Defense gets buried, the sitting Secretary of Defense, uh, it would be unseemly if you weren't there to watch and make sure he was put in the ground. So in this very busy time for Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, he was there at Arlington burying the jerk who got him into the situation that he's now in, the current Secretary of Defense. And also there was the um, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who was, is sort of busy these days, but he had to take time. He's apparently uh, General Milley uh, knelt in front of Rumsfeld's widow as he handed her the flag that had draped her husband's coffin. <sighs> How'd I end up back with dead people? I thought I said, <laughs> wait a minute. I'm sorry. Didn't I say I I see dead people. I started out, didn't I say, let's go to thing, and I ended up back in a cemetery. Dang it. Okay. Well, okay, let's just, while we're there, let's stay in Afghanistan. I have been silent about this. I have uh, eschewed I have eschewed talking about the over-the-top, hyperbolic ridiculousness of cable news and news in general 
uh, in the reporting of the messy end of this mess of a 20-year war. Like it should have all of a sudden been pristinely done. Like all of a sudden we should be looking extraordinarily competent and prescient. There is no doubt that Joe Biden did the right thing in getting us out. Someone had to finally do it instead of just wringing their hands and talking about it. We could be there for the next five million years. We were never going to win. And apparently we're never going to learn. I think I said earlier in the week, I believe I was quoting Fareed Zakaria, who said, there is no dignified way to lose a war. But to listen to the pontificators and the media, you would think that this had always been some impeccable operation that had only fallen into disarray upon Joe Biden's ascendancy to the presidency. Uh, what prompted me to finally stop my silence is something that was written in the, in the New York Times today, and I am appreciative of it. Because it just very clearly delineates the the question that you would want these um, complainers and finger pointers to acknowledge, which is, well, uh, what would you have done differently? I mean, you, we're hearing a lot of complaints. Do you, do you have a, uh, but he shoulda, woulda, woulda. And um, David Leonhardt, who I more and more think of as like the guy I want to listen to. He writes a, uh, a wonderful daily bit called The Morning for the New York Times, and it's worth the price of admission. He has been a a calm, clear voice during the pandemic, cutting through the crap, and in this case, as well. And he said, um, there is a naivete about much of the commentary and hand-wringing that's going on about uh, Afghanistan, because it all presumes that there was some clean way to get out. If only they had, you fill in the blanks, because these pundits never do. There is no, again, there's no dignified or elegant way to lose a war. The biggest mistake, of course, was staying there after we'd gotten the Taliban, not the Taliban, the, uh, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda. Because that's why we supposedly went here. They were giving safe haven to Osama bin Laden. And damn it, we were hurt and we were pissed and we had to fight. And I was for that. Go get those SOBs. I didn't mean the Taliban. I meant Al-Qaeda. And we did. 
So do you remember, maybe, if you watch, that the president of Afghanistan was at the White House? I remember being shocked when I saw he was at the White House because it was not too long ago. It was the end of June. And uh, there was, you know, the usual pictures of the president sitting in one chair and the president of Afghanistan in the other, Ashraf Ghani. And we learned later that one of the things that Ashraf Ghani was saying to Biden was that, hey, look, I know you're leaving, but please don't make a mad dash to grant exit visas to all these people who worked with you because it's going to look as if America does not have faith in my government. I mean, excuse me. Uh, well, I should, I, 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 I wanted, I, I mean, I, you can't make this up. This got this Ghani cut. To, the reason they fell in two days is because I mean Ghani went. <clears throat> he disappeared. But the real reason that we didn't get these guys out sooner is that, and I, I don't we know this stuff is that the former president, Donald Trump, and this will not be surprising to you, was not into allowing refugees into the United States. And I assure you that Donald Trump and Stephen Miller, who was very much part and parcel of this problem with getting these translators and others out, didn't want Muslims, because that's what they are, brown-skinned Muslims coming into our country. They didn't want anyone coming into our country except, except people from Norway, I believe. Trump once famously said. And so here is, you know, nothing ever gets put in context. Trump, and even before Trump, Republicans, when they had congressional power, intentionally and constantly tried to screw up our immigrant visa program because they didn't want those people in. The very program that we are now using to bring those in Afghanistan who partnered with us to our country. When he was president, Obama asked that the cap for this program be lifted so he could be getting more people out. Senate Republicans put the kibosh on that. And then Trump comes in and he starts slowing down the processes. He, with his appointments, makes sure that people understand if your job is to process immigrant visas, Don't do it. Do it with one hand tied behind your back. So when Trump, well, he didn't hand off the reins, as you know. When Biden becomes president, there are over 10,000 of these visa requests that are clogging the pipeline. No, 17,000, excuse me. And so Trump and the Republicans quite openly 
destroyed almost every refugee program that could help desperate people like these get out. You know how many Trump let in in the four years he was here? The White House. We're not in the White House. Why did I say here? 400. 400. When Biden came up, they had to start sort of like rebuilding the entire program. And um, Republicans are still making it clear they don't want more Afghan refugees in the United States. Stephen Miller, the xenophobic, racist creep of all time, was quoted recently as saying this. Resettling Afghans in America is not about solving a humanitarian crisis. It's about accomplishing an ideological objective to change America. That's the racist thing. They're making, this is all an effort to make us less Christian, less white. So when you look at the catastrophe, to not in Afghanistan, which is over the top, the fact is apparently that the number of people that we have gotten out is extraordinary. And if media didn't always need to frame everything in a negative way, they would be extolling this because the end of any war will have pictures and videos and realities that you cannot bear to watch. Mind-blowing. I'm sorry, I have a call. Is the caller still there? Forgive me. Oops, I did that again. Hello. Hi there. Good morning. Oh, hello. Hi. Hi. I called about Charlie Watts, but then you went on all your other things. Oh, well, I'll do um, stay with Charlie because I prefer that. Okay. Would you call what um, Charlie do? It, what's interesting is, you know, okay, he was, he was 80 years old. Right. But what's... It, 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 what's funny to me is in 1981, um, I got me and my friends got tickets to the Rolling Stones concert right outside DC at they were playing at the Capitol Center, um, and 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 back then I don't know if you remember this or, or but when somebody big like the Rolling Stones was going to play somewhere, they just didn't put the tickets on sale. They made an announcement like at midnight. So people would have to stop what they're doing, wake up, and then run out to the venue and buy, stand in line and buy tickets because that was just be cool. So I remember it was a Saturday night. We had been partying and really should have been going home. But we're like, oh, guy, go get tickets. We stood out to like 3 or 4 in the morning. We got our tickets. And we had to see them because we thought it was their farewell concert tour <laughs> why why wouldn't you think that right well, they back then, you know, <laughs> yeah they were almost 40 years old you know uh, and God. you didn't have old rock and roll stars back then no. they all no. died or just that were one hit wonders or whatever and yeah. uh it was amazing um it was a great concert um you know, I, I don't know how Mick Jagger did it. I mean, he, because he, 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 he doesn't just sing. He is like, he's like doing like the 20 minute workout for like two and a half hours, you know, he, you know, aerobically. I mean, it's just well, crazy. I was at, and, you know, he, yeah, his last concert here at Heinz uh, Field, um, well, he, he had to be in his 70s um, then. And yeah, he was all over. I mean, I have videos on my phone of him all over the place. The Doug Hurst, though, um, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but this is how I remember. He had a great quote about 
Keith Richards. Do you, do you ever do you remember that one? No, no. Tell me. It says Keith Richards is actually dead, but somebody forgot to tell him because <laughs> he looked like hell. <laughs> he had he, he had lines on his face, but he had lines on his face when he was twenty five. <laughs> you know I, mean? I know. <laughs> he'll be. You know what? I bet he'll be the last one standing. You watch. He's preserved. Something's inside. Well, preserved. I don't know. And I do want to, um, you know, his book that he put out, his biography, autobiography, is just ingenious. And so much of what I see in these obits about Watts is pulled directly from the stories Richards tells <laughs> in his book. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Hey, can I, I'm going to make an observation, and, and maybe this is me being, you know, biased on my age, but it just seemed like um, musicians, especially of past, they are much more complicated. I don't know. Well, you, um, no, very artistic know in many different ways. Many, very artistic in many different ways. Um, I don't know. I, I no, and, you and, you know, they, and they surprise you. They surprise you. Yeah, but you don't know that that's true. It just seems that way. I I I don't know. I you know when when someone is present in you know it's the present time, the the complexity is not always apparent. Although true. there's more of a you know manufactured uh, you know thing that can go on with musicians, but that was always happening. You know the manufactured kind of uh, celebrities and. And bands, and those are usually not all that interesting. But no, um, I suspect that in 40 years we'll find out that you know, well, I don't think we will. That like Justin Timberlake was incredibly interesting. Maybe I don't know. I don't oh, well, know. But, uh, that, but anyway, that was my story. That. That's a cute story. I was a kid. Yeah, it's a cute I was a teenager for 20 years old, and it was just like they were old. And we better well, hurry up and see were. them before they all they all died before they were forty years old. It was just really funny, and now they're just well. It's why a lot I of them are still rolling. I know why I still used to. I always that was always what I was thinking. So I saw them at Heinz Field. Then I see them at uh, you know what was at PNC. Then I see them at yeah. And and it's always because I mean my God, they're old. You got to go see them. It's the same thing with Dylan. I used to go all the time, and then he just kept showing up, and I thought, screw it. I, first of all, I didn't, even, <laughs> I didn't recognize any of the songs he sang. Only anybody did, because he reworks them. So anyway, that's, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. All right. Okay. Yeah, stay positive on Bye. something today. I don't want to talk about Rumsfeld and that. Ugh. Okay. I'm done. Right. Bye. Me too. Bye. Bye. Actually, I do have one. I don't have anything positive left here. I, I'm sorry. You know, I have a little thing where I remind myself of what I got. There's another story I haven't talked about because it seemed far away, uh, both geographically and um, in terms of time. But it's so anymore and I keep reading more and more about it and it gets more and more troubling you know there's the recall election in California of the state's democratic this very democratic state democratic governor Gavin Newsom who doesn't float my boat I'll tell you yeah he's like the classic kind of politician now you know good looking beautiful family god he was married to that horror that is now uh, Trump Jr.'s girlfriend. That's god-awful human. So right there, Gavin Newsom is like, <clears throat> forget it. But he is the democratically elected governor of an overwhelmingly democratic state. But this is a state, as you know, that has really crazy politics. And one of the things they have that other states don't have is an ex extremely easy recall um, protocol. So he's been, the Republicans went after him, wanted to, and, and it has to do with his handling of the pandemic, masks, the fact that he told everyone to wear masks and then he was seen, you know, partying somewhere without one. So hypocrisy. 
And um, we keep hearing, I mean, for months now, that there's a great deal of concern that he's going to lose and that a Republican's going to win. How the hell can a Republican win a California statewide election? And when you see who's a Republican who's ahead, well, it's it's mind-blowing. This is not how to do democracy. There are 46 candidates. And most of them are Republicans. In order to win, all you need. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Wait. This is, I don't even, if a majority of voters don't pick, Newsom, the governor. Now, remember, you got 48 candidates. So add up all of those up of the 47 candidates. And you can see how it'd be pretty hard to get a majority. If you total up, I mean, Newsom's one of them, but then there's these other 40. 45. Put all their numbers together. And the odds are they'll be bigger than Newsom. And so if a majority of voters choose to not vote for Newsom to keep him in office, then the person with the next most votes becomes governor. So that means Newsom could have and will have, I I, I don't even understand this. I don't even understand this. So none of these Republicans has consistently polled above 20%. Newsom is polling around 48%. And yet it could well be that somebody who most people don't want will end up being governor. And right now, apparently, that looks like this lunatic right-wing talk show host, Larry Elder. He calls global warming a crock. He opposes any minimum wage. And he vows he'll lift all COVID instructions when he's elected. The people who instigated this stupidity, who garnered the recall petitions, uh, you know, the votes and the signatures and all of that, are Republicans, and they're freaked out, as usual, because Republicans create monsters, and then they lose control of them. They're just really needs to be called the Frankenstein party because that's what they do. And so these Frankenstein Republicans in California are now freaking out and saying, we're not voting for Larry Elder. That was not why we did this. Oh, well, it appears you've lost control. I don't understand that. California's got to get a handle on some of this lunacy that they've got. Uh, the referenda, all this crapola. It, it, it doesn't seem to be helpful. Um, I have a caller. Go right ahead. Hello? Mm-hmm. Yes. <clears throat> hey, Lynn. Yeah. I, I agree with the uh, caller called about the musicians back then. And the ones now, I I take like Keith Richards. He's he's a style of his own. He plays the five strings. He does drop D tuning. I mean, to play his music, I have to retune my guitar to play it. He just had these are groundbreaking musicians who created BB King, Jimmy Page, 
Jimi Hendrix, all these guitarists created their own sound. And the ones nowadays, they had that sound to work off. These people were picking it, they were making it up as they go along because they had to create that sound. And that's why I think that's what he means. These people, they had to cut their teeth on nothing. You know what I mean? It was like, so I, you know, they, that's how I feel about it. The music well, today, there's a lot of good yeah. music today. There's good musicians, yes. But that's groundbreaking stuff. I mean, Chet Atkins. I mean, I can name list after list of musicians that contribute so much to, uh, that's guitar aspect, because I only know that. But even their drummer, he's a great drummer. So, you know. I don't know enough about music to make these kinds of judgments. I just know I really love the Rolling Stones. And, and I love their music. Distortion came out back then and broke in like British music and all it, the whole thing. It just it was just groundbreaking for as guitar okay. playing, far as I know. But I do agree with them on that. I but there are ones that are good today. I gotta admit. But uh, yeah, they had they had a good sound. Yeah. Or I should act yeah. like they're Wonderful. gone. They still have a good sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, don't sound like they're yeah, gone. Yeah, don't say that. <laughs> Three quarters of them are still here. Okay. Hey, like Carlos Santana is another one. Santana. Okay. <laughs> Great. Okay. We'll see. Thank you. Thank All you. All right. Bye. Bye bye. bye. Uh, Chuck writes one thing about Charlie Watts. Yeah, I learned this from all the obits. He used a minimalist drum set. I mean, it's just like the drum set you'd buy for your kid if you wanted him to start learning drums. In you know, you see some drummers and they've got a you know half an acre of uh of drums and cymbals and god knows what's around them and charlie watts yeah he had just a basic set and chuck writes some of the best drummers took this approach max weinberg drummer for bruce springsteen same thing Charlie Watts was literally the heartbeat of that band. And I don't think they'll be the same without him. Yeah, but can't they just get a drummer? I mean, I know they have a standby drummer because he that he was going to do the tour, this most recent tour with them anyway, because Watts was ill. Um, can't the drummer, I mean, it's, it's not like we don't know what Charlie Watts did. Can't the drummer just be told to do what Watts did. Don't do anything else. Just do Watts. It's not like they're playing new material anymore. Am I right? I mean, I'm not aware of any. So, I mean, whatever Watts did, why can't they just do that? Oh, I don't know. You know, I... I still have, you know, an address book and it's an appointment book too. I still am on paper in that way. It's dog-eared. It's coming apart at the seams. And yet I use it. I don't use my phone. And I'm, you know, in that I don't, it's not a statement I'm making. It's just what I'm used to, what I, is easiest for me. And I happen to be looking for a phone number the other day and I'm paging through my, my phone book and I swear half the people in my phone book are dead. And I, this is a definite sign you're old if half the people in your book are dead. And a lot of them soon to be. So that's always sobering. I thought, should I like cross them out? I mean, I wonder, even those of you who are on, uh, you know, have all that stuff, contacts and stuff on your phones. When somebody dies, you don't erase them, do you? I don't want to erase them. But it's remarkable. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> it's, it's really... Remarkable. Yeah. Oh, one more thing on Afghanistan, because I just, I, I think I just saw this, what, last night? I, 
um, these two friggin' grandstanding fools, uh, congressmen, bipartisan, one Republican, one Democrat, who flew into Kabul uh, because they're, well, they take their job seriously and their job is oversight of the executive branch. And so these two idiots go flying in, didn't tell the State Department, didn't tell the Defense Department, didn't tell the White House, all of whom are ready to kill them. They fly in to do their work. What could they do except distract, which is what they did? What could they learn? They were on the ground less than 24 hours. And then they fly themselves back out on one of the charter planes was leaving the airport. And that's the part that made me go crazy. Because two desperate people who should have been in those seats couldn't get on. Now they insist we only, we said, we only want to go in what would be empty seats. How could there be empty seats when we're so desperately trying to get everybody we can out? Unbelievable. Really unbelievable. And that's another thing about politicians and politics now. There are two kinds of politicians. Well, there's probably more, but... You know, we're into binary stuff. There are politicians who become politicians and become elected officials because they really want to get something done. They have a definite point of view (laughs) and they want to push forward those things that they think would benefit the country. And then there are other people who get into the business, the business, didn't used to be a business, business of politics, because they want to get famous, because they want to be on TV, because they want to grandstand, because they want to have tons of Twitter followers and be a known entity. And they don't give two hoots about the actual job as envisioned by the people who created the country. The job of a senator, the job of a congressperson. And we see more and more and more of the form of the excuse me, ladder. These people who are just in it for the glory, the money, the power, the fame. And it's, you know, and I suppose there are some people who sort of straddle those those lines. I think somebody like Fetterman would be one. Because I see him as a, you know, somebody who, he, who knows that he has the makeup of somebody who stands out. And he knows how to play the the game of celebrity and personality and all of that. But I also do think he has a desire uh, to move things forward. I don't know. When you think of the way we do politics now, stop and think if any of our great presidents would ever have been elected and not a one of them would. Not a one of them. Abe Lincoln, you kidding me? Wouldn't fit the bill. It's too serious. Talks over people's heads. Oh, I know he can tell a joke. He tells a good story, too, but he's homely. 
my mother insists he's handsome. I think my brother says he's handsome too. I don't think he was handsome. I think he was grand. FDR, you can't have a president in a wheelchair. looks weak. I don't know. God help us. <laughs> and I didn't even get to the Wendy Bell story of the day. Damn it. I forgot. Okay. I'll get to it tomorrow. God almighty. Hey, thanks for being with me. And um, stay cool. Stay safe. Be careful. Keep your head down. No, keep your head up. Keep hydrated. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. And uh, talk to you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Thursday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.